The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s. Sociobiology. Ever since Charles Darwin first published his theory of evolution, people, including Darwin himself, have been speculating on how our social behaviors, our feelings, attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, might also be affected by evolution. After all, if the way that our bodies look and work as biological creatures can be better understood through evolution, why not the things that we do with those bodies? The entomologist E.O. Wilson was the first to formalize the idea that social behavior could be explained evolutionarily, and he called his theory sociobiology. At first, sociobiology gained attention only in biological circles, and even there it had strong critics. When sociologists and psychologists caught wind of it, the controversy really got started. At the time, sociology was predominantly structural functionalist, with a smattering of Marxists and feminists. Psychology was still dominated by behaviorist learning theory, with humanism starting to make some headway. Not one of these theories has room for the idea that we, as human beings, could be so strongly determined by evolutionary biology. Over time, E.O. Wilson's sociobiology found more and more supporters among biologists, psychologists, and even anthropologists. Only sociology has remained relatively unaffected. Instinct Let's begin with an example of instinctual behavior in animals. The three-spined stickleback is a one-inch-long fish that one can find in the rivers and lakes of Europe. Springtime is, as you might expect, the mating season for the mighty stickleback, and the perfect time to see instincts in action. Certain changes occur in their appearances. The male, normally dull, becomes red above the midline. He stakes out a territory for himself from which he will chase any similarly colored male and builds a nest by depositing weeds in a small hollow and running through them repeatedly to make a tunnel. This is all quite built in. Males raised all alone will do exactly the same thing. We find, in fact, that the male stickleback will, in the mating season, attempt to chase away anything red from his territory including the reflection of a red truck on the aquarium glass. But that's not the instinct of the moment. The female undergoes a transformation as well. She, normally dull-colored like the male, becomes bloated by her many eggs and takes on a certain silvery glow that apparently no male stickleback can resist. When he sees a female, he will swim toward her in a zigzag pattern, she will respond by swimming toward him with her head held high. 
He responds by dashing toward his nest and indicating its entrance. She enters the nest, her head sticking out one end, her tail out the other, and he prods at the base of her tail with rhythmic thrusts. She releases her eggs and leaves the nest. He then enters the tunnel and fertilizes the eggs. And then, a thorough chauvinist, he chases her away and waits for a new partner. What you see working here is a series of sign stimuli and fixed actions. His zigzag dance is a response to her appearance and becomes a stimulus for her to follow, and so on. Now, perhaps I'm being perverse, but doesn't the stickleback's instinctive courtship remind you of some of our human courtship rituals? I'm not trying to say that we are as mindless about it as the stickleback seems to be. It's just that there are some similar patterns, and these patterns may form a part of, or the basis for, our more complex learned behavior. Etheologists the people who study animal behavior in natural settings, have been studying behaviors such as the sticklebacks for over a century. One, Conrad Lorenz, has developed an hydraulic model of how an instinct works. We have a certain amount of energy available for any specific instinctual system, as illustrated by a reservoir of water. There is presumably neurological mechanisms that allow for the release of some or all of that energy in the presence of the appropriate sign stimulus, uh, to follow our analogy, a faucet. Now there seem to be mechanisms, neurological, motor, hormonal, that translate the energy into specific fixed actions. Today, we might suggest that the hydraulic energy is a poor metaphor and translate the whole system into an information processing one. You know, each era has its favorite metaphors. But the description still seems sound. So does any of this apply to human courtship and sexual behavior? Well, I'll leave it up to you. But what about some of the other examples? Here are two possibilities that stand out. Number one, there are certain patterns of behavior found in most, if not all, animals, involving the promotion of oneself, the search for status or raw power, and this is epitomized in aggression. So let's call this the assertive instinct. Number two, there are other patterns of behavior found in, it seems, somewhat fewer species, involving the care for someone other than yourself, epitomized by a mother's care for her babies. And let's call this the nurturant instinct. So if these instincts are part of human behavior and help to explain why we do what we do, what would happen if we took a look at the behaviors that we find in a typical American couple? In fact, Let's do that. Let's take a look at John and Mary, a typical American couple. Let's see what happens in their lives, and then we can make some comparisons to, I don't know, something completely unrelated, maybe a Komodo dragon. Could there be 
any similarities between human beings and these ancient lizards? John and Mary, a typical American couple. John and Mary picked out a lot in suburbia and had a nice two-story house built on it. They have since moved in and made it a real home, with their own furniture, decoration, landscaping, and so on. They keep their home neat and clean and are especially proud of their fancy master bathroom with a jacuzzi. They put up a fence to keep their dog in and their neighbor's kids out, and have installed burglar and fire alarm systems. They even had a nice mailbox sign made up that says in gold lettering, The Smiths. They like their town, and they spend some of their leisure time taking scenic drives and frequenting some of their favorite watering holes. Both John and Mary work, and although they like their work, they would have to confess that their true goal is to make a killing in the stock market. They bring home quite a bit of money every week, and they have considerable investments and a sizable nest egg. Their jobs are demanding, the business world being highly competitive and dog-eat-dog. When they finalize a profitable deal, they like to celebrate afterwards, but they've also had their share of failures and have had to skulk off with their tail between their legs. John and Mary have quite a few friends at work, and like to get together with their friends. Most of these friends are people of their own status, because it's hard to be comfortable with someone who is your boss or who works for you. But they are polite people, and are always pleased to see an acquaintance. An attractive, well-groomed couple... John and Mary dated for about a year after they met. Soon, they became a serious item, and finally, they got married. They are thinking about having children, but they are concerned that they will need to move if they want to provide their children with the best possible neighborhood, the finest schools, and the best possible environment. John and Mary, being a typical American couple, would have almost nothing in common with, let's say, an eight-foot lizard with the brain the size of a walnut, like a Komodo dragon. There would be nothing in common between their needs and that of this Komodo dragon. I mean, let's think about what a Komodo dragon really spends its time concerned with. Selecting a home site, establishing a territory, marking that territory, patrolling that territory. It might spend time foraging or hunting, homing or hoarding. It might be interested in forming social groups, flocking together with others that are similar to it, greeting them, grooming, courtship, mating, breeding, migration. Those are the concerns of a Komodo dragon. But let's revisit that story about John and Mary, the typical American couple, and see if we notice anything that might be similar. 
John and Mary picked out a lot in suburbia and had a nice two-story house built on it. Selection and preparation of home site. They have since moved in and made it a real home. Establishment of territory. With their own furniture, decoration, landscaping, and so on. Marking of territory. They keep their home neat and clean and are especially proud of their fancy master bathroom with a jacuzzi. Use of defecation posts. They put up a fence to keep their dog in and their neighbor's kids out and have installed burglar and fire alarm systems. Patrolling territory. They even had a nice mailbox sign made up that says in gold lettering, the Smiths. Ritualistic display in defense of territory. They like their town and they spend some of their leisure time taking scenic drives. Trail making. And frequenting some of their favorite watering holes. Showing place preferences. Both John and Mary work. Foraging. And although they like their work, they would have to confess that their true goal is to make a killing in the stock market. Hunting. They bring home. Homing. Quite a bit of money every week. And they have considerable investments and a sizable nest egg. Hoarding. Their jobs are demanding. The business world being highly competitive and dog-eat-dog. -dog. Fighting in defense of territory. When they finalize a profitable deal, they like to celebrate afterwards. Triumphal display in successful defense. But they've also had their share of failures and have had to skulk off with their tail between their legs. Assumption of distinctive postures and coloration in signaling surrender. John and Mary have quite a few friends at work. Formation of social groups. And like to get together with their friends. Flocking. Most of these friends are people of their own status. Because it's hard to be comfortable with someone who is your boss or who works for you. Establishment of social hierarchy by ritualistic display and other means. But they are polite people and are always pleased to see an acquaintance. Greeting. An attractive, well-groomed couple. Grooming. John and Mary dated for about a year after they met. Courtship with displays using coloration and adornments. Soon, they became a serious item. Courtship. And finally, they got married. Mating. They are thinking about having children. Breeding and attending offspring. But they are concerned that they will need to move if they want to provide their children with the best possible neighborhood, the finest schools, and the best possible environment. Migration. The point of this exercise is to illustrate just how closely human beings are related to other animals, even animals that we may think of as being far beneath us. The patterns of behavior that we observe in human beings are not that different from other species in the animal kingdom, and all of these patterns have been shaped by Darwinian evolution. The application of Darwinian evolution to the understanding of human behavior is sometimes called evolutionary psychology. The basics of Darwinian evolution are quite simple. Darwin noted that all animals tend to over-reproduce, some having literally thousands of offspring in their lifetimes. Yet the populations of animals tend to remain quite stable over generations. 
Obviously, some of these offspring are not making it. There is a limited amount of food available for the animals, and many animals succumb to predation or simply fail to reproduce. What effect, Darwin wondered, might this competition for limited resources have on populations over time? Darwin's genius was in putting together the three steps that explain evolution. First, there is quite a bit of variation that exists within any species. Much of this variety is genetically based and is passed on from one generation to another. Included in that variety are traits that help some individuals survive and reproduce and other traits that hinder survival and reproduction. Second, there is a selection process. Nature blindly allows the propagation of certain traits and discourages others. This may occur in competition for scarce resources, such as certain species having better access to nutrition through existing food sources. Or it may have to do with avoiding predation, so that the animals who run faster or hide better are more likely to survive and therefore to reproduce. Or it could have to do with sexual selection. The peacock with the brightest plumage is most attractive to the females and therefore has more offspring. As long as variety continues to be created by sexual recombination and mutation, and as long as the resources for life remain limited, evolution will continue. Third, there is the fact of reproduction. Animals that do not live to reproductive age do not reproduce, and animals that live to reproductive age but do not have offspring do not spread their genes into the next generation. So the three steps of Darwinian evolution are variation, selection, and heritability. In a competition for survival, the variation that naturally exists within any species will provide advantages for certain members of that species. Those with the most advantages, those best adapted to a given environment, are more likely to survive and reproduce. In reproducing, they pass along more of their traits into subsequent generations. Of course, this may include traits like running faster or hiding better, but along with those traits are other secondary traits not directly related to survival that also get passed along and that can later recombine and create new variations in the next generation. Traits that are not selected for do not hitch a ride to the next generation and therefore disappear. The pattern of variation, selection, and heritability is called natural selection. And many people wrongly assume that upon Darwin's publication of On the Origin of Species, every scientist in Britain immediately became an evolutionist. In fact, Darwin's theory of evolution faced massive skepticism within the scientific community, both for religious and scientific reasons. At the time, many scientists were still closely aligned with religious beliefs, and besides, adhering to some form of religious doctrine was expected in polite society. The strongest scientific criticism was that Darwin had failed to explain the mechanism by which the variation occurred. 
Now, Darwin himself acknowledged this weakness in his theory. His response was much like that of Isaac Newton, who, being asked to identify what physical force explained his observation about this so-called gravity, replied that, I can't explain the force of gravity. I can only describe how it works. It was not until many years later, and the work of Albert Einstein with his theory of relativity, and the explanation of the movement of mass through curved space, that a full picture of the force of gravity finally was available. Something very similar happened with Darwinian evolution. And Darwin went to his grave never knowing the actual mechanism that explained how traits from one generation passed into the next generation. Had Darwin known, however, about the work of an obscure Gregorian monk named Gregor Mendel, the story might have ended differently. Gregor Mendel was busy describing the basics of genetic inheritance with his work on pea plants. Unfortunately, Gregor Mendel's work would not be widely disseminated in British scientific society until after Darwin's death. It was not until the work of James Watson and Francis Crick, however, that the final piece of the puzzle was put into place. With Watson and Crick's explanation of DNA, the final physical evidence for evolution was revealed. And that evidence has been growing stronger ever since. The structure of the DNA molecule explains how the traits of the parent are passed along to the offspring, and how variations in DNA explain the variability that occurs within a species. This combination is now called the Neo-Darwinian synthesis. Genetics explain the variability in the species. Natural selection provides a mechanism by which certain genes hitch a ride into the next generation. And heritability is a function of mating and breeding. Let's imagine for a moment that we set aside any notion of human beings being created in the image of some deity and instead we begin to embrace our kinship with our fellow primates. We are members, after all, of a partly rational primate species, and we have not deviated that much from our ancestry. In fact, you should not be surprised the next time that you watch chimpanzees or bonobo apes at the zoo, if you find yourself marveling at just how much those apes are so very human. You may be startled by that realization at first, but it is a common recognition and one about which we should not feel ashamed. So imagine that the BBC has created a documentary about Homo sapiens to study human behavior in the same way that we study that of bonobo apes or meerkats or Komodo dragons, the British have sent one of their finest nature reporters to perform natural observation on late adolescent and early adult human beings in their natural habitats. With an objective scientific eye, the science reporter observes colonies of Homo sapiens gathering to display 
ritualized mating behavior in what they call a club. Late adolescent female homo sapiens engage in ritualized displays of their femininity, hoping to attract the most desirable mates of the species. Male homo sapiens, for their part, attempt to separate individual females from their social groups with offerings of libations and masculine courtship displays. They attempt to lure females to their own den or temporary home, perhaps called a dorm room, and may even attempt to signal their mating prowess to other males by hanging a sock on the doorknob. Both members of the homo sapien mating pair may be uninterested in long-term coupling and may instead be pursuing only a short-term mating opportunity. In their vernacular, this is called a hookup. Yes, homo sapiens are the most fascinating species. Rap star Baba Brinkman has rapped about this in a project called A Rap Guide to Human Nature. Let's listen to this track called Short-Term Mating Dance. Tonight's documentary presentation will explore the short-term mating behavior of one of the most remarkable creatures in all creation, the Homo sapien. Homo sapiens, also known as humans, generally mate in pairs, creating the illusion of a monogamous constitution. But the truth is slightly more elusive. As is often the case as evolution advances, the preferred strategy depends on circumstances, and scientists seeking answers look to these elaborate courtship dances. Males and females congregate in large colonies to display their traits. They often fail to find long-term mates, but so much flesh will not go to waste. And it's now that the advantages We've got a short-term mating dance up in here, up in here, up in here. They've come to breed. We've got a short-term mating dance up in here, up in here, up in here. Note the sexual dimorphism. The larger male form is invariably caused by competition for female attention. Charles Darwin called this sexual selection. But the females also compete for male parental investment. For this species, like no other, has a grotesquely prolonged adolescence. Given this fact of developmental anatomy, some have questioned whether a naturally selected short-term female mating strategy could even exist. But in fact, it's mathematically certain. For every short-term copulation that results in conception requires the participation of one male and one female. Hence, there must be a mutual inclination. And it's now that the advantages of breeding in such dense colonies become clear. We've got a short-term mating dance up in here. Up in here, up in here. Females can make their choice to many males, while successful males can have access to lots of females. One theory is short-term mating for long-term gain. Females may appraise the quality of mates from a single liaison to decide whether to allow them to stay on. Concealed ovulation allows frequent mating with little fear of conception and keeps males guessing. Those who excel in dominance competitions enjoy short-term preference, which suggests that it's all about the father's genetics. The best ones for feathering the nest and providing temporary protection may not be the best ones for siring sexy sons. But of course, this can be dangerous. The scientific study of Homo sapiens is rather recent, so we can only speculate on the reasons for much of their extraordinary behavior. And it's now that the advantages of 
including his Rap Guide to Evolution, the Rap Guide to Human Nature, and the new Rap Guide to Business. You can check him out on his website. I've included a link here in this podcast, so simply click on the artwork in this podcast and it will take you directly to his website where you can learn more and even download entire albums. 